Welcome back to Exegesis. Today I'll be talking with Gary Morgenstein about his new play, A Black and White Cookie, the story, the craft, and the process of getting it performed for an audience. If you enjoy these kinds of conversations and what the JLJ does, please like, share, and subscribe. You can support the JLJ through Patreon or PayPal and follow the JLJ on YouTube, Instagram, and through the site to keep up to date with what's going on. And now, without further ado, Gary Morgenstein. JLJ is back with Gary Morgenstein, who is play... A Black and White Cookie is about to start at the tank, um, and we're here just to kind of see what what's the genesis for this play at this point, at this time, and and to probably talk a little bit about craft and um, how to construct a play and then how to get it uh, actually put on, which is a feat in and of itself. So welcome, Gary. Um, thank, thank you, Eric. I'm, I'm delighted to be here. A Black and White Cookie finally opens in New York City after being postponed from our original production in March 2020 by COVID. Uh, we open July 9th to 24th at the Tank, and it's a play which looks at modern anti-Semitism as one of the basis, as the, as the key to other kinds of prejudices. Um, so often plays about anti-Semitism now are just, um, they fulfill a, a political narrative, everything. Um, it's all the belief that the only anti-Semitism, unfortunately, is from the far right, if only that was true, but it's not. Um, and so I wanted to use uh, and also dramatically, when you write a play uh, and you just want, as soon as the Nazi goose steps on stage, that's kind of, you, you kind of know what their story growth is and their character growth, which is nothing. <laughs> so, so what I wanted to do is take modern anti-Semitism and, and look at it as what happens when good people are prejudiced. Uh, because I'm not worried about the fanatics on either side. History has shown us they're not the ones who ultimately succeed. What succeeds are the people, the decent people who look away, who say, well, you know how those people are, or you people, and, and, and that's it. And so anti-Semitism as perhaps um, humanity's oldest disease in terms of hatred, um, opens the door through the unlikely friendship between a, a gruff conservative African-American named Harold Wilson, who finally, a senior, who finally um, reopens his newsstand in the East Village after the, the shutdown, um, only to get hit by an exorbitant rent increase, and he can't, he has to close. So enter his eccentric, let's say, Meshuggah, um, longtime uh, customer, Albie Sands, who's a 1960s style communist Jew, who persuades him to fight back. So there are things they must overcome. Anti-Semitism anti is, is one of those things. And they, um, they, fought, they, they show that there is more that unites us then divides us. And I think that's really important now. It's easy, you know, we live in a society where everyone's young and there's just polarization and accusations. And when you go into the concept of prejudice, it's, it's a third rail, rail, of course, because there's so much now in our society that we can't touch. You can't explain, for example, more often than not, why something happened without being accused of a grief. Well, no, I'm just trying to understand. You know, I mean, yelling is false, but listening, that's drama. And when you talk about prejudice, you can show why people are prejudiced, but you don't have to agree with it. But we have to understand why this happens so we can communicate better. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting you, you're talking about sort of uh, how it was supposed to open in March, but now obviously it's opening now almost, I guess, almost two years later. So it's interesting that um, I assume that the detail about uh, 
that there was a shutdown was added during the COVID shutdown versus originally perhaps how it was um, sort of incited. So that's an interesting idea around how context can shift a work, even though it was quote unquote done, let's say two years ago, how we can update works across time. It's also interesting in the sense of like, do you see a difference now in terms of how the piece might come across uh, on the theme of anti-Semitism uh, now versus perhaps March of 2020 and how it might uh, kind of affect people differently? Well, I, the question is how much do people care about? And I think that's a legitimate question. Um, I th- when, I, when we first were gonna open, and I, when I was telling the producers, I said, well, we should talk about anti-Semitism. He said, they said, no, no, you'll drive people away from coming to see it. I said, well, what do you mean? Well, you know, you can't talk about that. And I found that in other works, for example, I had a play, um, A Tomato Can't Grow in the Bronx, which opened in New Jersey. Um, and it was, it's about a working class, <clears throat> excuse me, Bronx Jewish family in 1968. And don't say that they're Jewish working class but they are. <laughs> no, because the people will think, well, it's only for Jews. Well, wait a minute. But, but, great example. Would anyone dare say, well, you can't do something about a, a, a working class black family or a Hispanic family? I mean, would anyone? So there's a different, there's a way Jews are viewed differently. And I had these comments from Jews and that's something to remember. Um, so yes, anti-Semitism is worse than it was in, in 2020, um, New York State, um, in a country which set a record for anti-Semitic hate crimes, New York State ranks number one. And people, oh, well, it must be those yahoos and the Catskills. Well, no, because 60% of the anti-Semitic acts in the state are in New York City. So the question is, so I was not focusing purely on anti-Semitism. I was saying, okay, let's look at how that opens it up to how all we're all you people, those people. Because as soon as you say, Aaron, you know, you know, you people, well, I kind of I've deal I've I've delegitimized you. For whatever reason I'm saying you people, and it's a lot of <laughs> it's a lot of boxes to check up how people could be delegitimized. And that makes it easier to discriminate against, to, to abuse you. And so I wanted to show that sort of thing. But when you talk about um the pandemic, yes, I totally, I, I'm not that perfect. <laughs> and, and when the place shut down and I was like, oh, what, <laughs> what? So then the following January 21, I said, all right, enough of this whining. I just thought of my nature. I'm gonna get, do Zooms. I'm gonna get the play out there. And I looked at the play and I thought, well, wait a minute. How can I not address the pandemic on many levels on the making it contemporary to to making it true to things like there's a scene where one of the characters is has what he what he says is sinusitis. And in the original production, it would have been all right, you know, you'll get better. But now, are you really sure you have that? Have you been tested? You know, it's a whole different thing. Do you are you vaccinated? How many vaccines do you have? It, so it's a lot of different things that I I had to layer in. It made it a better play, frankly. But yes, it, it's organic. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting to think about um, sort of, you're not the first person who I've dealt with now with theater where we they sort of transition to a Zoom theater experience. And I, I'm curious as to that versus sitting in a theater, how that, how that shifts perhaps the artwork itself. Do you think it's not as good? Do you think it, you have to create something new, different? Or how, how do you see that sort of interacting with how you construct a play? 
Well, I had never done Zoom before. I think like, you know, other zillion people. Um, I hate to say something where more than 5 million people have died. There's a silver lining, but it is inherent to the human nature to survive somehow. And Zoom, what Zoom did was enable artists around the world to connect. So I had five Zoom production readings of the play from the UK to Los Angeles to Washington. Um, now, so I met people and some people who worked on Zoom, uh, Russell Jordan, who um, is the lead in, in A Black and White Cookie, he did two Zoom readings. So uh, of the play, um, Rosalind Seal, who was supposed to be in the original production and she's back as Carol Wilson, his niece, um, was in a Zoom production. Now, Zoom obviously has limitations. You can't hear anyone say author, author. That's, you know, let's, you know, talk about important things. But, um, but you, and you don't see people's legs. You don't have props. You don't have the intimacy of theater. So there's nothing's going to beat theater uh, when you come down to it. But Zoom is important to get it out there. And so audiences in England saw the play, and I think Los Angeles. So I think there's something to be said for that, I think theater has often lagged behind other um, entertainment uh, industries um, in terms of not embracing the future, or at least the, even the present and, and the digital era. And I think Zoom showed that we can do that. Yeah, it's interesting to think of the medium of, of how, in some ways, if you were in the 1500s and you're in 2022, it's really the same kind of experience of, you know, you sit there and there's a stage and, and, and you're just viewing the thing. Um, so it is interesting to think about how how does the technology shift an art form or how can an art form adopt technology, perhaps even create something uh, new and different. Um, it's interesting you're talking about New York as sort of perhaps an epicenter of anti-Semitism, whereas most people sort of see it as uh, maybe a haven of of Jews to a degree. Um, so do you think that like the story is a New York, a quintessential New York story? Do you think it's sort of New York is a backdrop to to your story or how do you sort of see the city itself? Uh, within your within your work? Well, New York City is definitely a backdrop to it, but it's about people. It's about two people who don't think they have anything in common, two lonely people, two broken people, two hurting people who find that they do. And they have a path and a journey. And I think that's universal. I think we're all reaching for people. Uh, and, you know, even before COVID, we you want to talk about the impact of technology. I think society, all societies, have become so siloed because of social media. And, you know, oh, you didn't answer my text in eight seconds, you know, so aren't you my friend anymore? <laughs> yeah, stuff like, you know, all that, it doesn't promote human contact. And I think the beauty of theater, live in-person theater, is the immediacy, as you say, as it was back in Shakespeare's time, the ancient Greeks. I mean, there is something, there's something wonderful about the tradition of theater. I think you, we need to reach more people. And I think Zoom did that it, because of cost, because of pure geography and access. I think a, a new generation who embraces Zoom and understands this came to theater. Um, and again, it's not what it should be, but I think it's really important. And I think nothing is like doing stories about people that you can identify with. I think that, that is also what you know, separates theater, for example, often from movies, especially nowadays, when CGI is used as often as not to um, replace storyline and characters. So we have like a 25 minute 
fight scene in a Marvel superhero movie. Okay. And no one's hurt. Really? Okay. <laughs> yeah. You know, but theater, there's no, you know, all right, you have the big Hollywood productions and Spider-Man return, you know, all that blanking. But for the most part, it is like you describe it. It is just people on stage who you feel and you you want to you want to see yourself in their stories. And that's what, you know, it, nothing beats sitting there in the theater. Except now, of course, if people wear masks, can you hear them laugh? I, the play finally opened um, outside New York in, in October at the Silver Spring stage for a weekend. It got shortened by Omicron. Um, and then it got postponed two weeks because one of the actresses was exposed to COVID. Her father was ill. Um, and I, I remember sitting there and thinking, oh, no one likes it because of the masks. Because you, you can't yeah. hear the laughter. <laughs> that's yeah, yeah. that's the, the neurotic playwright talking. Um, but uh, but it's it's still, it, there's the connection. Yeah. So walk me through how, how one, you know, we have a lot of people at JLJ who are our writers. That's primarily yes. who we're how, Walk me through like the process of genesis of a play to production on a, on a stage. How does that look? Um, obviously, I'm sure there's multiple ways that it can get there. But how did, for for this one, how did that look? Sort of the the steps. Well, the play just came to me. I was at um, family gathering um, at my in laws, and I was just sitting there on a Saturday, overstuffed on uh, baked ziti and red wine. I was like, and then the door to the other side opened. I have no other way of describing it, and in walked my two main characters. I said, hello, how are you? They introduced themselves and, and away we were. But then you need to find, you need to have it read. I think the most important thing when you write is you have to be willing to devour your young and say things need to be changed. So you need a table reading. Um, and just actors are not acting, acting per se, but they're going to read your script so you can hear it, especially in theater. And then you need to find a venue. And one of the things, the problems in New York is it because of the pandemic there were a number of theaters, independent theaters that closed. Uh, and that's, you know, it's it's increasingly Broadway or really downtown. And people forget that is it is all the small theaters that bring um, productions or ideas uptown. I mean, not as much as, because don't get me started about Broadway and all the endless revivals um, and, you know, the big budget musicals. Um, but, and then you need to find a place, either you're gonna rent it, you do an equity showcase, for example, you can do that, you know, you could, with not a lot of money, but it's still, still gonna cost money, you, you're gonna lose money. Um, there are, I'm, I'm fortunate because the Tank Theater, it's a wonderful theater. In fact, they, they won an Obie Award for the way they promote the, um, the arts in New York City. And they accepted us and they gave us a lot, you know, like the theater and the rehearsal space and front of house. Um, and then I put together um, the team and I'm, I'm blessed because I have a, a wonderful director, Marcello Rolando. As I mentioned, I have Russell Jordan um, and Rosalind Seal, uh, Jay Dolan Burns is playing Albie Sands, Matt Provenza playing Mitchell Reed and um, Marina Rebecca Chan playing um, Jay and Pham. Uh, so every, and they're just wonderfully talented and gifted and they understand what the play's about, which isn't to say there's a right or wrong, but they're open about play. Which it's is interesting with a play that it's so interactive, right? I mean, with a book, you're writing, and then that's, you know, you have editors, but it's different, I suppose, with with a, a play that how much um, say or sway do 
perhaps the actors or a director or a producer have over a work that you've that you've written? I give them a lot. Because otherwise, why am I writing a play? I, I write dystopian political novels, but as you see, you're absolutely right. It's just me. It's my name on it, good or bad. There's no one to play and we'll get the credit. But the, the, the beauty of theater is the collaboration. And then you see things that you never thought of. And they say, well, the writer must have met this and meant this. And you're like, well, I know. <laughs> I wish I knew what about that. And, you know, I sometimes I, I write um, a little more stage directions than I should. Not terrible, but a little more. And the director says, no, no, we're going to do it differently. And it's great. The, the, the different things. Then, of course, it's the blocking on stage, which is we're in the, the, the our second week of rehearsals now. And you would forget where they're walking around and where they're turning and looking. It's all staged. It's got to be locked down. Then I just go, oh, I'm going to walk there. No, and it's that's it's it's a wonderful process to watch a play come to life and to see actors imbue your your characters. I mean, the characters lived up here. I when I write characters, I, I usually don't physically see them. It's it sounds weird. I mean I might describe them, but I don't say, oh, that they're like, you know, I don't see them as like five, nine, 150, you know, I, I don't really see this. So when you see actors take over, it's uh, and then bring their own stuff to it, their own backstories, their own humanity. It's 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 fascinating to watch. Yeah, I mean it must be I suppose when you see it produced and uh, the first time through, I suppose you might be surprised in some ways, just as much as, as somebody who's never you know, experienced the piece that way. Yes. Oh, and you don't know um, what the audience is going to laugh at. I, you know, I've been there where you think, why aren't you laughing? That's a funny line. <laughs> you know, everyone's, but then something you didn't think was funny, people were roaring about. And then, of course, as a, as a playwright, you have to understand the silence. Because silence doesn't mean people are sleeping. Silence means they're listening. Sometimes that's the greatest sound of all in a theater. They're paying strict attention to what's going on, and they're 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 part of it. Uh, they're they've accepted this world. They've they've stepped into it with the, with the actors. Yeah, it is interesting to think of, of silence. I suppose um, it's something that would sort of shake somebody who's not experienced with a, a stage production <laughs> or is yeah. sort of waiting for a constant reaction. But um, yeah, it's interesting to think of how the silence is, you know, you were talking before about a table read and silence and how that might play in there too, where we're sort of, um, as much as you can hear it in yourself when you hear somebody else's voice on the lines, how, how much that might affect uh, an editing process or, or just thinking through a problem or making something better. Um, so whereas sometimes it, it just doesn't work. It's simple as that. The line doesn't work. The exchange doesn't work. Usually because it's too wordy. You're just overcompensating to say it. Um, then the actors will say, I don't understand this, which is great. Because if they don't understand it, the audience is going to be confused. And that's why you want them. And you have to be willing, like I said, to listen and make the edits. I mean, that's writing in a nutshell. Everyone has a, a, a good story. Fine, go write it. But then once you're going to write it, first of all, you got to write and you have to deal with the blank page every day. But then you have to be willing to work at it and edit it and say, wow, this is rubbish. <laughs> How did I ever write this? Yeah, I often think, um, I teach some, I teach writing classes and things, and oftentimes what I tell the students is, 
if one person doesn't like it, it's it might be good, it might be bad. But if three people tell you that it's a problem, you're probably wrong, and they're probably wrong. you know at some point you have to yeah. you have to have that humility to be able to say I was probably wrong, you know I, I'm wrong, and and probably the people are right who are who are asking the questions and pointing things out to me. Well, yeah, because right is you're kind of a little schizo here because on the one hand you have this godlike vision, oh this is my world, I've created this and everything, and the other hand you're neurotic and insecure. I don't know. Is it really any good? You know, <laughs> and you very. There's a reason why people become writers. We're a little different. <laughs> that's uh, that's it. I mean, that's just how it is. I my mother had told me a story when I was in first grade. Um, the teacher called to the class, which was never a good thing back in those days. You know, it was like, oh, what has happened? And the teacher pointed through the window in the, the uh, from the hallway into the classroom. And there I was with pencils, making up stories and calling things out and everything. And the teacher said, I don't want to uh, restrain or suppress his creativity, but the class is listening to watching him more than they're watching me. You know? I mean, that's, the, you know, the, the kid who played with pencils, that's, we're all like that. We all tell stories for various reasons. Uh, you grow up in an unhappy home. You want to find a way to create an alternative world where it's not so unhappy. That's nothing, you know, so unusual about it. Yeah, it's interesting. You, you were talking before about um, how you don't see the characters necessarily and this idea of story. So with a play, do you, you start, this one happens to start with characters. Do you find that it's easier to start with characters? Do you find it's easier to start with a plot or, or how do you think of, or is just whatever comes to you in the, in the moment? I think it's the characters. Ultimately, the characters have to do it. Uh, you could have a notion of an idea. You know, I had a notion kind of, well, I would like to write something about a story about anti-Semitism, but I had no idea what the story was. And then there they were. Um, but I think when you try to write something plot, you're making your characters follow the plot and it should never be there. The characters must always, even action movies, right? It's the character who decides if they're going to be able to jump from rooftop to rooftop, right? <laughs> right? I, it's uh, silly enough, that, but it's true. And so I think you really always have to defer to your characters and, and writers will say this and it sounds terribly precious, but it's true. Uh, Philip K. Dick always talked about this. Of course he was crazy, but that's besides the fact. Um, that uh, Characters will take over your writing. They are, you know, and you're, oh, well, come on. You know, they're in your head. Well, not really. In a strange sense, they're not, and they will change the scene. You always try to start a scene with some idea where you want, but they'll say, "Oh, schmuck! I wouldn't say that. What's wrong with you?" And they'll. It's a very odd experience, but you have to let it happen. You can't, you know, fight against it. You should have a plot, but the plot should. It's always good to have some idea where you're going to end up. I usually have some idea, but I really have very little idea how I'm going to get there because it's that's the, the fun journey usually fun yeah it's interesting to think about with um so like you know Charles Dickens used to lay out his entire book basically in an outline and then he would fill in details whereas somebody like uh there are other schools of thought where it, as soon as you know where you're going you're supposed to stop writing and then wait till you don't know where you're going and, and start again um that would be Hemingway's sort of uh, approach to writing so it's interesting to think about how there's some middle ground there where like, you know, the character is enough where the characters will lead you through the details, but they'll still, they'll still do the leading. Um, and you sort of just let them t 
take those reins and and bring you through the story. Yes, because because at the end of the, the day, the reader, the, the viewer, they want the character. That's it. That's who they identify. When you read a novel, you identify with the character. You remember the character. And that's what you, you should never, at your own peril, you forget that. Which I think in, in too many Hollywood movies now, as I said before, they, they've forgotten that. Yeah. I think it's it's interesting to see people rely on on archetype but not feeling again those like specific details that would that would build something unique and specific where you would be able to grasp you know a, char- a really good character versus just a, a, a kind of general ideology or character you know um, that doesn't really have the same meat on its bones. No, and I, there are writers, of course, who write um, their avid thoughts, and I don't. I always believed, and and the more I write, the the less I I really do that. I'm, as often as not, I don't always agree with my characters. I sometimes I'm offended. Their behavior appalls me sometimes, but that's who they are. It's not about me. My beliefs, my politics, my this is completely irrelevant. It's just what the characters do. And you have to be willing to have characters who sometimes behave badly. We all behave badly at some point. We're human beings. We're not perfect. Yeah, something that that I think stymied me for like years was I kept writing myself on a page, which is a terrible, yeah, well, like, you know, and that idea of catharsis. And then it's like, is that really art? I think when you when you get to write about other people or characters in general um, that are not you per se, you know, obviously there's you infuse a little bit of yourself that I think that's just natural. The idea of of allowing for the characters again to be outside of you, something else that really does free up um, the writing so that it it actually works rather than just being you know fifteen different ways that you see yourself kind of yes absolutely you have to be able to do that you really have to step back and really take yourself out of the story yes there's always going to be a little bit of you somewhere but you really have to just create distinct characters and you have to create people who are flawed but not villainous necessarily i mean in a black and white cookie i have a couple characters who have prejudiced views one a little stronger than the other but they're nice people they would rush to the aid. If they saw a Jewish person on the street being attacked, they'd be the first one there to defend them. So it, it's, you, you have to find that balance and that complexity and sometimes the contradictions of people. And you gotta, you know, in theater, you must have an arc. Your characters must go somewhere. I remember when I first um, gave a black and white cookie to um, this producer and she said, Boy, your, your characters have developed. I said, well, of course. She said, well, you'd be surprised how many people, their characters remain static. And that's, then where have you seen the journey? Yeah. No, it's interesting to see how, how people will um, sort of think about, uh, you know, manipulating things at the end of the day, trying to create something new. But at the end of the day, there are some fundamentals probably that, that can't be messed with, you know, the, the, the character being the primary and dealing with characters perhaps that you don't like. It's interesting to think about, you know, um, you were talking before about anti-Semitism and you're sort of like the Nazi on the stage sort of gives its own vibe. But it's interesting to think of of people who have written Nazis in the past and, and how how one does undertake such a uh, an endeavor to humanize a Nazi, you know, um, and, and especially within perhaps a Jewish sort of setting or uh, with Jewish characters involved. Well, you know, let's, let's think about how Jews are often um, depicted which is something that's, um, you know, I find very interesting. Uh, 
by play black um tomato can grow, grow, grow in the bronx which is actually going to open in december at the at the um chain theater and it's about like i said a working class family and i'm a couple of characters the two of the male characters they're you know they're union guys and um, when we had, when we were at Center Players in Freehold, New Jersey, and we had talkbacks. We had sold out all six shows, and then when they had another, we sold that out. There's a waiting list. Anyway, so after the talkback, people, people saying they identify with the family and blah, blah, blah. And then people would say, what? I didn't know they were tough shoes. Well, you know, you should, finally, I say you should probably talk to the 100 million Arabs who <laughs> have been dealing with Israel. But you think about how, how would Jews in in popular entertainment and theater, movies, TV, often depicted. Well, we're de depicted as nebishes, orthodontists, and going to your point about the Nazis, all too often victims. I mean, what is the, the most popular Jewish-themed movie, say, of the last 30 years with Schindler's List? Well, you know, I'm going to guess anecdotally that the most produced Jewish-themed play of the Fiddler on the Roof, would be Anne Frank. And this is, these are, these are depictions, these are characters, these are themes, almost always produced and created by Jews. So you have to think about that. And is that, how healthy is that? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to think of, um, right, you, what you're saying before, like you wouldn't have a Jewish pride movement, but there is sort of, almost the opposite which is like a don't don't look at us too hard or or um, yes obfuscation of of perhaps what we're capable of in, in an interesting way yes uh, well, and that goes back to the you know the early days of hollywood when you know the i mean six i think six of the seven studios except for disney were all jewish run and you could understand coming from the old country fleeing persecution to 20s and 30s um they were you know, leery, they wanted to assimilate. All immigrants at that point wanted to assimilate and there was some pushback from certain segments of the press, but they lay low. And, you know, in the thirties into the forties, the only movie to take on Hitler, to make fun of Hitler was the great dictator by Charlie Chaplin. You know, mo most people probably thought he was Jewish. Uh, you know, there was the mortal storm with Jimmy Stewart um, where they never mentioned Jew, which is non-Aryan. In fact, um, Gentleman's Agreement with Gregory Peck, which is based on the Laura Hobson um, novel in 1947 and won the Oscar uh, for Best Picture. It was about anti-Semitism among the upper class in Connecticut, okay? But the Hollywood um, studio owners did not want that made. They tried to stop it and they gave it to the only, well, at that time, the only um, um, not, at the time, Daryl Evzanik, Grand Fox. So they said, well, you have to produce it. We can't have a Jew produce that. Now, this is 1947, two years after the Holocaust. And then you think, well, it took 1960 for Exodus, which actually talked about the camps. So 1961 was, uh, and, and in 1960, they, the lead character was Paul Newman, who's, though his father was Jewish. He was certainly not identified as a Jew. And he always said he re regretted taking that role. And Judgment in Nuremberg, Stanley Kramer actually, you know, took on in, in more detail. But so we've always kind of been shy. Now, I don't know if it's like, you, you know, a Shonda for the Goyim, you know, it's, uh, you know, we don't want to draw attention to ourselves. To, um, but we have to 
be out there too. And I don't know why Jews can't take pride as other people. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, you know, part of what we're trying to accomplish, I guess, would be to to allow for that. I'm not sure what the, I don't know what the psychology of it is. I can't tell if it's a, a post-Holocaust kind of thing, a pre-Holocaust thing, a, a general like, um, you know, Ashkenazi Jew kind of, um, I mean, if you talk to like Ashkenazi Jews, that does seem to be the theme, whereas you talk to more Sephardic uh, Jews, they're, they're less concerned. And I, you know, it's an interesting comment on sort of um, the last thousand years in Eastern Europe and how, how Jews were sort of treated there versus perhaps the Arab, Arabic yeah. land and, and how yes. it does to the psyche and um, how we sort of process that uh, through time. Uh, so I don't know. I'm not sure. I do know that ideally we would, we would get to that place where we would, we could sort of just say, you know, I even, even I think today or yesterday, it's, it's a very strange thing to like put out that fact that you're a Jew. You know, I work in a, uh, I work in a public school. So it's like, yeah, it just feels very strange to, to just say, well, I'm Jewish, you know, in this, and that's just what it is. Whereas, you know, I sort of, I don't hide it per se. I'm not like ashamed of it, but it is not perhaps the first thing that I identify with, uh, you know, at any given point uh, in my day, which is interesting. Yes, well, but that's a very sad statement that you would even feel that way, that there would be any sort of pressure or anything. Um, I mean, we could identify just like anyone else. We don't have to be superior. I mean, I'm not certainly not saying that, but we have the same rights. We have the, certainly a rich legacy. Um, and I think sometimes we do what I would call like the, the Jewish step and fetch it. I mean, I still cringe when, I don't know if you're a science fiction fan, but Independence Day, when the, the Judd Hirsch uh, portrayals uh, uh, of Jeff Goldblum's father, where he was talking like he just got off the boat at Ellis Island, it was what was that about? It was like every cliche. And sometimes we default to the cliches because we think that's what's expected. That's what the Gentile world, how they want to see Jews, that they're not comfortable with tough Jews. But it's the Jews who are making that decision. Uh, Seinfeld, for example, um, of, of the four lead actors, three were Jewish, only one were, was, was a Jewish character on the show. Jerry, Jason Alexander, Julia Louis-Dreyfus, both Jewish, both the characters on the show were not Jewish. Yeah, I'm trying to think in the last, the most, I would say, tough Jews, I would say would be uh, Inglorious Bastards. Forget yes. when it came out, Loved maybe, it. Yeah. maybe six years ago. That was like the only, i trying to like think of um, any Quentin, other- Quentin, Quentin Tarantino, a non-Jew. Right. That is true. Right. Think about that. And he still or, has Brad Pitt as the, sort of the lead, you know, uh, leading the Jews. So it's not, you know, a Jew leading Jews per se. But it is interesting to think that that's probably in the last, for as long as I can remember, the most, you know, tough Jews just doing what they need to do uh, kind of uh, film. And I don't, I don't think there's any other sort of, maybe in Israel they're producing things. But I think that also comes back to that idea of like how Jews, um, and Israel sort of coincide and, and how the politics of that looks. So that, that probably has something to do with um, how we do or do not own uh, our own sort of titles or um, confidence within ourselves, depending on how the political uh, spectrum sees perhaps the tie between those, those entities and identities. Well, with the, with the anti-Zionism <clears throat> on the rise, which is not really anti-Zionism, but as all too often a stalking horse for anti-Semitism, um, you know, Israel is no longer the underdog, has not been for a long time. 
who's going to make a movie, who's going to want to see a movie uh, glorifying the IDF. Right. I mean, yeah, you know, I watch um, Israel does some wonderful TV shows on Netflix. Do you ever see Fauda? Yeah, of course. Okay. I mean, it's wonderful, but it's great. They're pretty tough. But at least it's a great gray morality. That's fine. Just don't show us as nevishes. You could you don't have to show Jewish super people who never make mistakes. That's ridiculous. But show us, you know, remember that movie maybe five, six years ago, Uncut Gems with Adam Sandler? Yes, yeah, yeah. That's a really good movie. And I'm not a big Adam Sandler fan, but I thought that was the best role he's ever done. But it was because he was so flawed. And yeah. you think about it, how often do we <clears throat> do Jewish um, creatives make plays, you know, entertainment about flawed Jewish characters as well? Yeah. <coughs> I think that, that film, the Safety brothers, right, did that film. I think that they're Jewish yes. as well. So it is interesting. Yes. Um, perhaps uh, as we sort of move through, uh, it's interesting. I think a lot about like the 20th century, Jew, you know, perhaps this is an oversimplification, but like the, the Potok type of writer versus the um, Philip Roth type of writer. And yes. Philip Roth was definitely of the apologize for the Judaism thing, whereas uh, Potok was a much more, I'm Jewish and that's just, yes. I live in the world. So it's an interesting sort of like uh, paradigm around how, yes. how different art, Jewish artists see uh, their own Jewish identity within their, their work. And I understand why it was in those days and how hard it is. And I expect, you respect the, the trailblazing of a Philip Roth, who I loved, and, you know, um, Saul Bellow and people like that. But even um, two of my favorite playwrights are Patty Chayefsky and Arthur Millen. And Patty Chayefsky, um, you know, the, the wonderful the teleplay, which was a movie, Marty, it was about an Italian butcher in the Bronx, not a Jew. The, uh, a Canaan Affair, the great movie with Betty Davis about an Irish fan, not a Jewish fan. You know, it's it's interesting. There was a self-censorship out of fear that people would not want to see that. And so the question is, I mean, and, and minorities go through this. We know that. I mean, that's a, it's unfortunate. It's terrible. But we, we can't do that anymore. And I don't think you see, I mean, my plays, some of my plays, uh, like Tomato Can't Grow in the Bronx, is kind of old school. You don't see, you know, plays about bickering Jewish families anymore. Why not? Yeah, I don't know. Yes. Uh, <laughs> you know, hopefully we get more. It's interesting yes. thinking of uh, your, I have to ask about the title of your play. I mean, obviously there's the black and white cookie, the literal, yes. know, why, why that title, how that title sort of- It just popped into my head. I wish I could say something brilliant. You know, sometimes when you, as you know, when you write sometimes, it just pops into your head. Yeah. You know, no one, you know, God did not press his finger on you. It's just, oh, it sounded good. Okay, fine. <laughs> no, I'm with you. Sometimes, sometimes that's just the way it goes. Uh, yes. And titles to me, I find are, are sort of, I think some people start with titles. I always found it hard to, I think titles like the last thing I'll do. I don't know how you feel yes. about a, a title versus the work. Yes. Me, I can't do it first. It just ruins. It, yes. It, it, it kind of boxes you into that, to the plot taking over rather than allowing the story. Yes. To through uh, a character. Yes, I usually pop the titles first. That helps me a little bit. It focuses me a little bit. But again, as I said, ultimately, it's what the characters are going to say. And it doesn't, you know, it, there's nothing wrong with having Jewish themes as long as it's not just about the Jewish themes. You know, I'm a great believer in writing about characters who happen to be. Because we happen to be a lot of things. And in our case, Jews, 
is just one of the things. I mean, I think, you know, we I happen to believe that our families had way more impact <laughs> on us, right? And, you know, you could, there's all, we live in a society where there's so many boxes to check. We have to remember we're just people. And I think that's what, you know, when you write plays, that's what you really have to push. That even though I'm this and you're that, we're still human beings and we've got to find a way to come together. And I think now more than ever, in our society, artists need to show the way forward. You can show dark and edgy and my plays show that, but ultimately you've got to give some path. You've got to give some hope. Agreed. I, I think that is sort of always the message. Um, and so in order to get it, um, the, the, a black and white cookie is going to be at the tank uh, July 9th, right? Is when it's opening. July 9th to 24th, yes. Excellent. And they can get tickets at uh, the tanknyc.org? Yes. yes. Anywhere else they should be looking, we can find you on social media. How, how else? Ed Ryder, on Twitter, Ed Ryder Gary, and on Facebook, whatever it is. <laughs> on Facebook. Thanks for listening to Exegesis. All links for today will be in the show notes. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate, share, and subscribe. Also, check out the JLJ's offerings on our website, Instagram, and YouTube. Please support the JLJ through PayPal and Patreon. Both are linked in the show's notes as well. We'll see you next time.